0: The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with passion for one another, lust for none other. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree, that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who... Practice them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that our hearts be open to everything you have to share with us this morning. May the words of my lips be gracious, honoring, and ever pointed towards you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, today is the final week of our Romans Disarmed series. Where we've been looking at Romans as this beautifully redemptive text, a text of reconciliation and welcome, but also recognizing that for certain groups, that isn't always the case. And today, we're going to get into the really uncomfortable stuff. Today, we are going to be looking at what it means to be welcoming to members of the LGBTQ2S plus community and why maybe we need to read those passages in Romans in a new light. The reality is that LGBTQ2S plus inclusion is the issue that churches are facing today. People are leaving churches over it, people are splitting in churches over it. Lots of people are just refusing to join churches over it. And perhaps most importantly, in my opinion, people are dying over this. Today is going to be hard for everyone in the room, I think. And that's okay. I'm going to be talking about things that will make us feel uncomfortable. And that's okay. And I'm going to be talking about things that have so many triggers attached to them that I need you to tell me afterwards if you think I could have done better and the ways that I can get better. I want to handle all these things in the most honoring way that I can. And afterwards, my friend Angie is going to be sharing her story. We've been talking about the importance of stories, and I think that's a story that we all need to hear. One of the reasons I have genuinely been very excited to share this message this morning is that I know that Wellspring is a loving, welcoming community. But, and this is a big but, many of us have been told or read or felt that the Bible stops us from welcoming everyone in the same way. It's also Important for me to say that it is not despite the Bible that I share this message or in spite of the Bible I feel the way that I do, but because of the Bible, because of how God and Jesus are revealed throughout Scripture and continue to be revealed to us today. For many of us, it'll be the first step on this journey. For some of us, it may be the last. For some of it, maybe we're somewhere in the middle. And if you're kind of new to this congregation, you're thinking, man, what have I got myself <laughs> into today? You've got yourself into a congregation who is on the first step of a journey of a destination we're not quite sure of. And, and you've got yourself into a church that is looking outwards and inwards and asking itself some perhaps painful questions as to what it means to love our neighbor in Toronto In 2019, because I think that is something that everyone in this building feels united on. We all want to love our neighbor, we just have different ideas about how that is done. It's also important for folks that aren't aware we handed out a paper on the kind of church's stance on this. It's a paper that was Put together by the deacons and elders, and Jenna and myself, and I will say I'm very proud of that. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to. If you have read it, read it again. I can't, don't have time to go over that particularly, but it's really important. The point of the sermon today isn't to berate anyone. It isn't to tell them that anyone is wrong or stupid or they're hateful or they don't love Jesus or love the Bible, love God or love people, but it's to show us that maybe an issue that has been presented as so black and white for so long may have specks of gray in it. It's good to remember that we live in a world with a living God who continuously reveals himself to us. And equally importantly, we need to remember that the church has been very wrong about things in the past. It wasn't so long ago that we wouldn't have had women preaching here. And we all pretty much are sure that we were wrong about that one. And I think we'd all agree that this church is so much richer for all the non-male voices that we get to learn from here. Our congregation is richer for the ways that we have learned and admitting that we have been wrong before. And as we've been going through the book of Romans this month, some of the questions we've been asking is what it looked like to say that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is not. We've been looking at what it means to build longer tables to make sure that there is room for everyone at the feast of Jesus. And we've been looking at what it means to listen to stories of people who are different to us, to keep our focus on Jesus and our focus on the manifold things that unite us instead of those particularities that divide us, that schism us, that split us. And today, whilst focusing on this issue, I'm going to be talking about Romans exclusively i appreciate that there are other texts in scripture that talk about it and we are going to get to them another day that's really important i'm not ignoring them i'm acknowledging there is so much to be talked about here that i want to do one thing well rather than manifold things poorly there will be time for all of us to talk about this in the future We'll also be having a Q&A after Angie and myself have spoken to discuss maybe what we've said, maybe what we've written in that document, so there will be time to hear your voices too. So on to that passage. That passage is pretty much presented as one of the reasons for the church's historical stance towards homosexuality throughout the years. That it's damaging, that it's against nature, that it's going to be punished. It's also important to remember, we want to be careful when we say things like, well, we're just, we're just reading the Bible, we're just taking the Bible literally. Because I've met a lot of people who take the Bible very, very seriously, actually. And I've yet to meet a single person who has cut off their hand when it causes them to sin. Like Jesus instructs us to in Matthew 5.30 at the same time I've sadly also never met anyone who has sold all their possessions given them to the poor to follow Jesus as Jesus instructs us to do in Matthew 19:21 To say that we are just reading the Bible isn't quite enough because we spent a lot of time this month trying to understand the world to which Paul is writing and today isn't any different. My point here is that there is always going to be nuance. This isn't about just what is said, but it's about who it's been said to. It's about what is going on that why it might be being said to them right now. That's exactly what's going on in Romans. Paul is as we have said writing to a time and to a culture that is very very different to our own today. And I really need to talk about, I think, what Paul is talking about in this passage and what he's not talking about. And it's kind of easier to start with what I think he is not talking about. The first thing that Paul isn't talking about is this idea of sexual orientation. To be very blunt, the idea of sexual orientation simply did not exist 2,000 years ago. The idea that men might be romantically attracted to another man or a woman to another woman, that, that wasn't a consideration, that wasn't in the vernacular or the nomenclature, that wasn't how people thought. And whilst there were definitely different sexual exploits that were enjoyed in, a different, in different ways by different people, the ancient world didn't conceive of what we now call a homosexual orientation, which we define as... Um, an ero- a natural erotic preference for others of the same gender as distinct from heterosexual orientation. And whilst homoerotic practices definitely existed, and we are going to get into those, there's just no parallels for what we use when we say homosexual. So to say that homosexuality is against nature It just doesn't correlate. The term doesn't exist back then. Now, this brings me to the next and maybe more important point. We need to talk about nature. We need to talk about what is natural. And this is where it gets really graphic. And I really debated not sharing this stuff because I'm still trying to work out what is appropriate to share and what's inappropriate to share And it makes me feel uncomfortable, and I don't like making people feel uncomfortable. But I'm worried that for too long in churches, we have sacrificed welcoming people so that we feel comfortable. There are too many at the altar of comfort, and that's not the altar that we bow down to. So in Rome, there's two roles. There's two roles. There's the dominant role and the submissive role. And being really blunt, there was ultimately the penetrator and the penetrated. And unsurprisingly, these roles correlated to men and to women. It was natural for men to penetrate. It was natural for a woman to be penetrated. It was natural for a man to receive oral sex. It was natural for a woman to perform it. The idea of homosexuality being unnatural has long been argued due to this verse. But we need to remember that, or bear in mind, that he's not using the term natural in the way that we would understand it. When we in the 21st century talk about what is natural or what's in nature, we look at data and we look at science and we come to all sorts of conclusions. We have experiments, we observe patterns, and they come to give us two conclusions and it's kind of important to note that conclusions, by the way, do show gay animals in nature. As an aside, Googling gay animals this week was like a risk that I was willing to take for this PowerPoint. Just, that's the, and the, apparently there's like a lot of gay ducks. That's the, what research has taught me this week, is there's loads of gay ducks in nature. So there's some gay ducks up there for us. So... If Paul is right in saying that, like, well, this is against nature, well, we've got a problem, right? Because it clearly does exist in nature. So if Paul is saying that, then Paul is wrong, but I don't think he is, or the Bible is wrong, and I don't think the Bible is wrong. I think he is using nature in a different way to the way that we use it. Because he doesn't have access to the information we do. He doesn't have access to the language that we do. When Paul talks about nature and about men and women turning against their nature, nature, for him means the presumed order of things, like literally just what is expected in first century society. But call it the conventional wisdom. Quite simply, the conventional wisdom of the day taught that women were expected to be submissive. Like, you know, they're smaller, they're weaker, so that's just their role, right? They take the submissive role in all scenarios. And it's really sad that people feel that way, and it's pretty cool that we've grown from that at least a little bit, but that's the way that it was. So any woman seeking a dominant role would have been considered unnatural. Any woman receiving oral sex would have been considered unnatural. So the problem isn't men being with men per se, but it's one of those men being penetrated. That was the problem. The problem isn't women being with women per se, but one of those women taking on the dominant role. For Paul, that is what it means to be against nature. So... If this isn't about sexual orientation and it's not about what is natural, let's turn to what Paul is talking about. What do we think that Paul, a first-century Christian, is writing to Rome, the first-century church, about? I mean, it's probably everything that's around them. It's probably their everyday life. It's probably the things they see all the time. And what's different about Rome is that Caesar's just down the road. He's in the city. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does sexuality under Caesar look like? Paul has already made the claim that Jesus is Lord, and that means that Caesar is not, and so Jesus is about to change things. But what are some of the things that Paul is so concerned about? To be blunt, sexuality under Caesar is horrendous. We don't have time to go into all the depravities of Caesar, but Caligula, who was the Roman emperor who reigned shortly before Paul wrote this letter, was known for his bold excesses and his cruel sexual exploits. One historian I read said that there is not a woman of rank in the empire that Caligula has not raped. That's what sexuality in the empire looks like. That's what it looks like when Caesar is Lord. And finally, after a few years, people got really sick of Caligula's treatment of them, and one military officer who had been sexually abused by him gathered a bunch of people, and they stabbed him to death, including through the genitals, So, when you hear that line, men committed shameless acts with men and received due punishment for their error, do we think that maybe he's echoing this huge event that has happened in the empire just a few years earlier? This event that everyone would know about, everyone would have heard of, that Caligula exploited this man and he got his deserves for that. But the difference is that 2,000 years later, we don't see what Paul sees. We don't see what this Roman church sees. We have our own focus. We have our own things that we look at. We see the world around us. We lose sight of what Paul is seeing, and it makes it more difficult to understand what Paul is saying, what he's speaking to. The reality is that when Caesar is Lord, sex is power. When Caesar is Lord, you do everything you can to assert dominance and to keep people in their place. You remind them that they are nothing. And the reality is that sexual humiliation is the best way to do that. It is the most efficient way to do that. And we still see this today. Jera and I were talking about this this week, and she said, you know, think about the torture suffered by those in Abu Ghraib. People may remember these photos, and this is one of the the less awful ones, and um, I debated whether I should put this guy up there, and my idea is not to exploit him, but to remember him. We think of the horrendous sexual abuses that were suffered in Abu Ghraib, and I don't know the sexuality of the people committing those atrocities and committing those torturous things, but I think it's fair to say this wasn't about erotic enjoyment. It was about the intoxicating nature of exerting power over the powerless. In Abu Ghraib, men committed shameful acts with other men. I don't think there are many people alive of any gender or sexuality who would argue otherwise. But it's not the homosexuality of the act that is wrong, it's the exploitation, it's the dominance, it's the abuse of another human being. And let's apply the end of Romans to what's going on here. The people doing this, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. If it's perfectly right, doesn't that fit so much more cleanly with the story of the gospel? Doesn't that make so much more sense that we'd be talking to an abusive situation like this rather than a mutually submissive, loving marriage? The reality is that every kind of wickedness and having no mercy or love, those are the natural consequences of violence by the powerful on the powerless. The chapter ends in the exact way we should expect it to when Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not. It's also important to know that when Caesar is Lord, worship looks very different. And a lot of what Paul is describing in the back end of chapter 1 actually perfectly describes the cultic temple prostitution of the day. Uh, The temple of Aphrodite, she's the goddess of love. I also had to do quite a lot of searching to find a church appropriate photo of her for what it's worth. He's talking about the worship of gods that aren't our God. Some of the horrible things that are going on in that temple and he has a problem with them. One of the big things was that boys would be sold as prostitutes in this temple and people are going against nature. They are forcing these young boys to go against their nature by penetrating them and unsurprisingly Paul isn't super okay with that and when women are asserting dominance the problem is that it's in worship to a foreign god and if something is intrinsically linked to pagan worship, that's not good. And these pagan gods are intrinsically linked with abuse of the powerless, and that's not good, and they're intrinsically linked with keeping Caesar on high, saying that Caesar is Lord, and that's not good. And unsurprisingly, Paul condemns those things. We'd expect him to. He should do. But we can see that Paul is not talking about gay marriage here. He's not talking about a marriage where mutual love and submission are key features. Everything in Paul's statements speaks to an abuse of power and abandoning of the true God to false ones. And those practices were all too prevalent in the first century Rome, and they're kind of too prevalent today as well. We haven't come. As far as we think, but this idea of being gay doesn't exist, didn't exist. only who was powerful. So looking at right now, we continue to live in a world where sex, abuse and rape are used to assert dominance in all kinds of situations. But doesn't it make more sense that this would be the cause for Paul's outrage? Caesar's raping boys, prostitutes worshipping foreign gods, exploitation of the powerless. Isn't that so much more on message with the rest of Scripture? Doesn't that flow so much more cleanly? Is it possible that for so long... The church's focus has been so heavily on what gay men and women get up to in the bedroom that we've lost focus on the injustice in the world that has always, will always break God's heart. Is it possible we paid too close attention to the words that we lost sight of the message? This message of radical love and inclusion, this letter that's all about the ever-widening circle of Jesus. You weren't in before, but you are now. And those things separated for you from God, and now they don't. You are welcome to eat with us. You are welcome to be part of our community. That is the message of Jesus. That is the message of Romans. We've got to disarm this text. I, uh, I could go on, but I think it's important to stop, because I think what's important is that we listen to different stories as I say it is okay if what I have said today has challenged you it probably should and if it's pushed you and made you feel uncomfortable that might be okay too and I'd encourage you to maybe listen to the podcast at the start of the sermon where I try to be gentle and say how important it is that we feel loved and included and together But I think we can all agree that if uncomfortable conversations are the price that we pay to be a church that welcomes everyone, and being a church that feels that Jesus is being followed, I think that this is worth it. Amen? I'm going to ask Angie to come up and talk for a while, and I'm going to see if I can get this mic stand to stay up. Anyone have any ideas? Twisty? I put that up to like my high Angie. <laughs> so, yeah. Is that okay? Does that work for you? Really move, move everything that you need to. If anyone
1: can't hear me, I'll just hold it.
0: But... Sorry? It's not on. Okay. Do it. Try now.
1: Hello. Hello? Great. Yes, excellent. So if, while I'm talking, if you can't hear me, I will just hold it. So just let me know. Excellent. All right. Hard act to follow. Thanks, James, so much. So I'm very privileged to be with you here today at Wellspring. Uh, but to be honest, I really just took this gig so I could have a chance to see my former colleague and friend, Bill Ryan. <laughs> so bye. <laughs> I could of course. Uh, I am honored to be here as a guest as you delve into this really loaded topic. And I'm not going to lie, this is kind of out of my usual topics of presentation. As a straight female in a traditional marriage, speaking about the subject of LGBT inclusion isn't usually what I'm invited to talk about. As the director of outreach, thank you, at Church of the Redeemer, uh, which is pictured here, um, we are directly across from the ROM downtown. I am usually speaking about homelessness, or poverty, or mental health, or addictions, or social isolation, and about about our biblical calling towards justice. But this topic, it is a bit out of my usual. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it's not actually as disconnected to my customary themes as I might like to think. And as I go forward and share a couple of stories with you, I think you too will understand what I mean. If someone meets me today and learns that I work at Church of the Redeemer, they might tight-cast me as a progressive, left-wing, ultra-liberal Christian solely because of where I work. But most days I feel much more complex than that, as I think all of us do. I remain quite sympathetic to various theological viewpoints, and I still find myself, even, in various camps on different issues, depending on the topic at hand. Is it the red button? Over. Perfect. Okay. So, oh, perfect. Okay. So, side note, you may think I googled evangelical clip art for these three pictures, (laughs) But I kid you not, these are actually three very real places in my life. Uh, my home church, which is called Suburban Bible Church, which James will not let, let go of. <laughs> Keeps teaching me. My camp and my school, my college. So these are three very real places in my life. So I remain sympathetic because my Bible church really had done so much for me growing up. I had a family and a home in that space and my youth group was a life-saving community for me amidst some hard times. You see, the church did exactly what it was meant to do for me. It saved me. And then after youth group, Christian Camp gave me some early space to practice my community organizing skills. And then Christian College offered me good friends and good learning experiences. So my Christian communities not only saved me personally, but they laid the groundwork for my, for my career and for my life passions. So when a church plays such a positive role in one's life, it's really hard to see anything outside of that, which is probably why the story I'm about to tell you impacted me so intensely. In my second year of college, my friends and I lived in a dorm with upperclass students. A girl named Emma lived down the hall. Everyone loved Emma. She was hilarious and always starved the show. She headed up the on-campus improv troupe. She had this incredible, incredible ability to use her gifts of quick wit and humor to get people interested and excited about our faith. Emma often led skits before chapel or a community event to get the crowd comfortable. We always look forward to Emma. Then one day, there was an ambulance at the dorm. Everyone was humming, curious to know what was going on. A girl from another floor came running down the hall and whispered to us this news. Emma had attempted suicide. Emma? Awesome Emma? The rumor was that Emma was in crisis all night because she told her friends that she was gay before she took a a bunch of pills. When we heard this, a chill went through the air. We were upset that this had happened in our dorm. We were concerned. But to be honest, that concern was really more about our Christian social norms being threatened. Everyone knew that Christians weren't supposed to be gay. We were notified the next day in a dorm meeting that the student was going to be okay. I remember they said the student over and over. No one would say Emma's name. This is the one we used to cheer for and laugh with. It was the weirdest thing. She was now without a name. And then I remember learning what was next for her. She's not going to be coming back here, was really all that was said. She was being kicked out for talking about being gay. No one really had to spell it out. And it's as if the largest emotion in the room was actually relief. We could return to our lives forgetting that this awkward thing had happened, her room was packed up, and we went on, and it's as if it was just what was needed to be done. When I was invited to talk about this topic here today, I thought I needed to start with Emma because this was my first experience witnessing the impact of my own theological stance onto a real-life human being. It stuck with me in a way I couldn't shake and I didn't really know what to do with that. How could Emma have gone from being the amazing girl that we love to watch and perform and laugh and worship with to being an exiled person without a name? Over the years that followed, I went from working with youth at camp to working with youth at group homes to working with youth on the street. I had an obvious pull on my soul that kept calling me deeper into the marginalized world. It's at Evergreen, I met Bill Ryan, and began to work with the homeless population. And guess what I found at Evergreen? An enormous overrepresentation of LGBT kids. So here's some stats for you, in in case you don't know. Based on stats by Away Home Canada, 40% of youth that are homeless identify as LGBT, and there are at least 35,000 homeless youth in Canada. 43% of clients served by drop-in centers like mine identify as LGBT. LGBT youth are 300 times more likely to be bullied And this, of course, puts them at a very high risk of depression, abuse of drugs and alcohol, and suicide. LGBT LGBT youth are almost always five times as likely to have attempted suicide compared to heterosexual youth. And this one blows me away. 39 years old is the average life expectancy for a person experiencing homelessness in Canada. Sadly, as I learned over these past 13 years doing inner city work here in Toronto, there is an undeniable correlation between the homeless and the heavily heavily marginalized community and theologically based LGBT exclusion. If you ever doubted that Christianity can have a major impact on on secular culture, here's an upsetting reminder that it can. According to some new studies, violence towards people from the LGBT community is often connected with conservative, religious-leaning ideologies which condemn homosexuality. My story of what brought me to, from Evergreen to Redeemer is for another sermon, another day. Hint, hint, James. <laughs> but the long story short is that I, have an ex- I had an experience that involved hating God through a person that was sleeping on a mattress on the corner of Young and College, and I knew I needed to get closer to the street. I've been with this community now for almost eight years. I continue to learn things with every new day and every new relationship. The people at the common table teach me day in and day out what God looks like, what grace looks like, what healing looks like. But also, I learn too much about what pain looks like, what isolation looks like, and what suffering looks like. It's a job where both hope and suffering are constantly present. Both are fighting for souls, and both are succeeding. So thanks to some long-term relationships, I often have this immense privilege of being able to tap into the profound wisdom in the community when I am looking to learn something. So in connection to our subject at hand today, I spoke to two incredibly gracious community members from the Common Table a a little bit about their own experiences being gay and growing up in the church. So here are some highlights from our conversations. They were kind enough to allow me to voice record, so I could capture the direct quotes here. The first person uh, I talked to is Kayla. Kayla is 35 years old, and she has the biggest heart. She volunteers almost every day, despite her own ongoing struggles. She shares her love of cooking with the community. I asked her, how were you treated by your local church community and Christians in relation to your sexuality? So, so each time I ask a question, they have a few different replies, and I've captured only one on a slide. So my, her, her, her first piece, my family and friends use their Christianity to condemn me. I was often made to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in my room, and I was told to pray to God that I would change my ways. This started when I was 12. But I know, or at least I think I know, that God does love me. He must, right? God can't not love me just because of this. I hope what they say cannot be true. I need God. The other person I spoke to I will call Joseph. Joe is 50 years old and has struggled with his, share, his fair share of developmental issues and trauma and has experienced homelessness twice in his life for several years at a time. Joseph is one of those guys that makes everyone happy when he sees you. He will scream your name down the street for a wave and sing songs to cheer people up when they have had a rough day. So when asked the same question, Joseph shared with me these quotes. I was really confused about my sexuality when I realized I had a crush on my best guy friend. But there was no one I could talk to about this at church. I loved that place too much, and they would never have let me come back. I was abused by another guy when I was a kid, but I couldn't talk about this because, you know, it was another guy. They wouldn't have heard me. Somehow, it would have been either ignored or pushed to the side. They couldn't have dealt with that, and my mom would have died. So I carried the weight of that on my own for a long time. My relationship with my family was very strained. My mom would go to church and pray for me with the priest. Because I knew she didn't approve of my sexuality, of me... I couldn't go to them for help when I hit rock bottom and became homeless. I just needed to survive on my own. I remember watching a guy die in the cot right next to me in the shelter. Literally, he died right there. And even though I was a grown man, I just wanted my mommy. But I couldn't call her or talk to her or get a hug. I was alone. After talking about some of these struggles, I then asked what would have been different if their churches had preached acceptance for the LGBT community. Kayla said, I would have connections with people that I love. They won't speak to me, they want me far away now. I wouldn't blame myself anymore for not being good. I could accept myself. I don't know. It's like I'm ruined. It's hard to see beyond that sometimes. Am I ruined? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm still trying to figure that out. Without their approval of me and without their love, it's basically made me question everything. And when I asked Joseph about what could have been different, he said these things. I I would have had somewhere to go when I hated it. My mom would love me and accept me. I don't think I would have been homeless. My rock bottom wouldn't have been so low. Bad things still happen, I know, but I, but I would have been at my mom's on the couch crying and drinking tea just like she did for the, the ladies in her church when they were going through something hard. I think that could have been me if she would have been taught something else by her church. She just said these things because it's all she knew. A few years ago, I sent Emma a note through Facebook. She friended me right away, and we chatted for a while. I was conscious of the fact that bringing up these things and airing out all of my feelings of sorrow I had about what had happened at school would be more for my benefit than hers at this point, so I was pretty calculated with my words. But I did tell her that I was now a part of an affirming Christian community and that I thought about her often and that I was so happy to see that she is doing well. She shared with me that she went through a hard time for a long while and that she is now an atheist. And despite her family rejecting her, she had found good friends where she lives now. Emma has been clearly wounded by the Christians in her life. She often posts things on Facebook about the church being super screwed up, and to be honest, she's often right. She often posts things about the church being hypocrites or having double standards, and to be honest, she's often right. She has found acceptance and love with fellow atheists, who have been better representations of Christ to her than we had ever been. And of course, her posts are still hilarious, and she is still in a comedy troupe. She is still the incredible, awesome Emma that she was when we cheered for her on stage. But here is what is lost. She actually isn't the one who's lost. We're the ones who lost. We, the body of Christ, do not shine as bright when we did what, when we had Emma. We don't shine as bright as we would if Joe and Kayla had experienced acceptance and love in their church and their Christian families. We don't shine as bright because there are over 6,000 people on the street every night in Toronto, and many of them, according to our stats here, over 40% are there in part because the church has told them that they are not worthy or accepted as who they are. So what I wish to say to those church and camp and college communities that provided my formation is this. You are the ones who taught me how to love. You are the ones who taught me that Christianity was about bold proclamation. And you are the ones who stirred in me this lifelong passion to journey with the marginalized and the poor. So then, my dear church family, it's time for us to get back to work. There is actually no risk in enforcing exclusion and condemnation. That is a comfortable and safe place for us to hide. The real risk is to love now. And hey, I won't lie. It's always a risk to interpret scripture. I have never met a biblical scholar who says the Bible is cut and dry or extremely clear on a multitude of issues. It's an ancient book. There are new layers of complexity each and every time I delve into passages and learn yet another interesting thing about the culture or the context or the language. I will never, ever know it all. But what I do know through experience walking with the poor and the broken is this. Jesus wasn't about certainty. Jesus was about love. Jesus was about siding with the poor and the marginalized always. And the problem is that there isn't time to waste. Children and adults are taking their own lives because of our long-winded, calculated deliberations. This isn't political. It's truly about life and death. Kids are dying because we can't figure out how to understand someone's sexual orientation, and we don't want to rock the boat. Frankly beyond the academic books and the scholarly exegesis, is this. What I've finally decided when it comes to the LGBT issue is on my own, in my own discernment process is that we are losing at our job of reconcilers in the world. For me, condemnation of someone's sexual preferences and my work of being a reconciler were at constant odds. I finally just had to forfeit one to embrace the other. So we are living amongst a broken world, and we too are part of that brokenness. We each yearn to know that we are loved, we are accepted, and we are cherished just the way we are. This is how we all experience wholeness. This is how we all experience peace. And in the end, everything is a beautiful brisk, isn't it? interpreting scripture, loving the marginalized, showing hospitality, accepting people that make us uncomfortable, accepting ourselves, trusting each other, working together. It's all a risk. And none of this is supposed to be easy. It's full of unknowns, and it's full of leaps of faith. So what if we just decided to admit our limitations of understanding and err on the side of love, of community, of inclusion. Because the thing about Jesus is that that whenever we draw a line between us and someone else, Jesus is always on the other side of it. Jesus is there whispering to the excluded that they are loved, that they are worthy, and that hope will come. And he's whispering to us that there's always room. Because how else will God show his beloved children that hope, that love, and that worthiness, except through us.
0: We pray for all the people who have felt unloved or excluded by our words, by our actions, by the things that we've done and the things that we have not done. And Father, we pray as always that we be a better representation for you, a better reconciler for you, and better lover of you all the time every day. In your name we pray. Amen.